church family, will you be seated? Take your copy of God's word and turn to Genesis 28. Uh, We will pick up this morning in verse 10, which is where we left off last week. As you get yourself settled there and turn in the scripture before we stand and read, I'd like to remind those of you uh, who are part of our strategic leadership team, that's our elders and our deacons, our small group leaders, and our ministry team leaders that we have a meeting today at four o'clock right in here. If you're one of those people and you're joining us online, you're not still gathering, you can can join us uh, virtually. You should have received an email from the church office uh, this week with a link to that virtual meeting. We'll have plenty of room for us to spread out in here today. Some important things um, for uh, us to talk about, things that we're gonna be presenting to the church uh, in the next couple of weeks that we'll consider at our first members meeting. The one that I am most excited about it is um, two words. You ready for it? Debt elimination, right? Not reduction, elimination, right? So important meeting today for, for our strategic leadership team. Hope to see you here if you're part of that at four o'clock. Will you stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's word? We're gonna look at verses 10 down through the end of the chapter I want to read the whole thing uh, for us before our message this morning. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you, I'll give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word, that it is truth for us, that your church may know of your mighty works. We may know of your redemptive plan. We may know that you use the undeserving in this world to carry out that plan, that we might be receivers of your promise just as Jacob was. Help us, God, now as we approach your word to be instructed by it, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
This morning's sermon is entitled, The God of Jacob. While we have concerned ourselves with Jacob over the last, uh, last week and uh, two weeks before that, we had that brief intermission where uh, Isaac becomes the focus. Primarily, it has been undeserving Jacob, culminating last week in Jacob stealing, deceiving his father to steal his brother's birthright. It is that Jacob that we pick up here in this story as he flees from his brother, going to Haran, the homeland of his father. I apologize this morning if my introduction makes some of you feel somewhat old. 50 years ago this year, a British band named Led Zeppelin released a song, Stairway to Heaven. Written by Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, it became one of the most famous and well-known rock and roll songs, not only of that era, but of all time. Still today, considered probably top two, three, at least top five of rock and roll songs ever. I make no apologies this morning that your pastor listens to rock and roll. I do. I I got an amen in the first service for that. So, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, it. Like many of the songs of that era, 1971, it's somewhat of a unique song. Kind of folksy, telling a tale that somewhat is up for debate about a lady who we're told is sure that all that glitters is gold and is buying a stairway to heaven. While debate has raged for 50 years and probably will for another 50 about what this true song is about, the authors of it don't really help very much. It, it, at the end of the day, it's a song of the temporal nature of life. It's a song about going towards death and about how the things of this world, which all seem to glitter, right? As if they were gold, will somehow pass, a bit, pass away pass us by, that we will all one day be dust. And dust is really where we find Jacob in this story. We find him at his absolute lowest, having focused his entire life on all the things that glitter as if they are gold. What have we seen so far in the life of Jacob, who is at least 40, some biblical scholars believe maybe was even in his 70s by the time that this event occurs. We've been told that he was willing to swindle his brother, bartering with a starving man a cup of soup so that he might receive earthly, an earthly birthright, and then scheming with his mother to deceive his father to steal the spiritual blessing that Isaac sought to give to Esau. And now again, at the advice of his mother, whispering in his father's ear, is going to Haran, a place he has never been, fleeing his brother who is seeking to kill him, leaving behind that very bartered birthright, leaving behind the land that was so intricately tied to the blessing of God that he had deceived his father over in the previous story. Alone. Leaving quickly, we get the sense here in the text that Jacob is completely alone. No one has gone with him. He's brought nothing with him on this journey, that he is going by himself, having to abandon everything that he had valued 
for all of his life. And here he is on this journey to his father's homeland, this city of Haran where his father's brother's family still lives so that he can hopefully take a wife from there. This would be a long journey. It would be a journey that would take on foot weeks and weeks for Jacob to make. He has likely already been on this journey for some time if where we believe this event took place from where he was in Beersheba to where uh, scholars tell us Bethel would be in the area of Jerusalem, he has already traveled some 60 or 70 miles doing probably what he had done on every night before and would do on all the nights after. Stop alone, having nothing but a rock for his pillow sleeping in the dirt. We find Jacob here at his lowest, without his family, without his possessions, and he still has not become yet a a Jacob who believes in God. And that, truthfully, is what this event shows us. This moment where God reaches down into undeserving Jacob's life and reveals to him who he is, and Jacob comes to faith in that God. Begins with the presence of God. Go back with me to verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba. That's that southern kind of city on the southern boundary of what would become Israel and went to Haran. It's a city in Mesopotamia. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place. He put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now we think just of what's happening. Verse 10 kind of sets the scene for us of where he's going from Beersheba to Haran. Verse 11 is, uses some, some really mundane language. In the original text, it's just this string of verbs, eight of them actually, all focused on Jacob's immediate action, that he left, that he went, that he came, that he stayed, that he took a stone, that he put it under his head, that he laid down. All of this intended to communicate the humanity of Jacob, that this isn't some special moment that Jacob has been walking to and knows he is about to encounter. We're supposed to read this as if it is just another day leading into evening on this normal journey here at the low point of Jacob's life that he is acting alone. He is alone. And he is not expecting anything to happen that night. He is just looking for a place to sleep. But then verse 12, the entire story changes. Not only does the story change because it goes from being the reality of Jacob setting up a camp for the night to him having a dream, but even the language of the story changes. It goes from using verbs to using infinitives, being, uh, being that it's, it's telling us something is different about this event. You'll notice here, listen to verse 12 and see what stands out to you. And he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angel of of God were ascending and descending on it. Verse 12 has that, what's translated in English as behold twice. It appears again in verse 13. It appears again in verse 15. It's intended to draw the readers in and to recognize that this is a unique moment. 
Now, we don't use the word behold a lot in English, in our regular everyday conversation at least. But there's definitely a parallel. If you've ever given a young child a phone and let them watch something on it or play something on it, three, four, five minutes later, they're really going to probably want you to what? See what they're doing, right? They found something funny. They think it's great. And so what do they do? Shove it in your face like, look, look, look. Look! And you, they're not going to stop till you what? Look. That's what the Hebrew word translated behold means. It means look. Pay attention. I'm telling you something important. And it happens at the beginning of every one of these phrases. And behold, and behold, and behold, and behold. Because it's important for us. The, the author of the text wants us to know this is not a mundane event in Jacob's life. Something is happening here that will forever change him. And so behold, let's look and behold for a moment this dream. He, he goes into this dream state and this is an epiphany of God. We've seen this both in the life of Abraham on numerous occasions, the life of Isaac, and now into the third generation that God appears. Jacob's dream is different. There's this ladder that's, that's the word here. It's a unique word. It could mean ladder. It could mean staircase. It could mean something that's a progressive steps towards heaven. I do think it is interesting to note where Jacob is going. He's leaving the land that God had shown Abraham and had promised to he and Isaac. And he's going back to the land where Abraham was from, Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia was the land of what was known as the ziggurat. The ziggurat was a special, it was a certain kind of temple that they used during the Bronze Age, during this period uh, in the East. This is, when we think of pyramids so often, we think of the ones in Egypt, right? Smooth-sided and when that day would have been shiny. In in Mesopotamia, it was somewhat different. They were used not as burial tombs, but as places of worship. And there were stairs along the way. It was believed in those pagan religions that a priest could climb those stairs and gain access to God at the top of them. Now, Jacob's never seen one of these before. He's lived his entire life there in Canaan, which did not have ziggurat but was going to a land where he would see them, where he would very likely witness these false prophets and false priests climb these stairs and attempt to have access to God. We've already seen what was likely one of these earlier in Genesis, in Genesis 11. After the flood, the people of the world come together and they, they say, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we'd be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So the last time we see one of these, they're building this so that man can be exalted to the same level as God. So that man can reach the heavens where God is. Genesis 11 takes place in Babel, which is in Mesopotamia. So now, Jacob, on his way to a place where people will climb stairways in an attempt to get to God, has this vision from God of the true ladder to heaven. 
And who is standing at the top? As the angels of God ascend and descend this ladder, there is one standing at the top of it. We're told in verse 13, and behold, look again, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. We don't see what is so common in the rest of the scriptures, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At this point, he is just the God of Abraham and Isaac. He's not yet become the God of Jacob. He's the God of Abraham, who God had originally led out of Mesopotamia to come and to go to the land that he would show him, who was the original receiver of the blessing. He was the God of Isaac, who had passed, who the blessing had passed on from Abraham to his son, who God had promised him for so long would come. But if we put ourselves in Jacob's mindset for a minute, forgetting what we know about the rest of the story, just for a moment, put yourself in Jacob's mindset. Here he is, the lowest point of his life. He's left family behind. He's left his blessing behind. He's left his birthright behind. He's left his mother, who's always been by his side, behind. His, his twin brother is trying to kill him. His, he's deceived his father. Here he goes to a land he's never been. And on what just seemed like an ordinary night to him, God appears to him in a vision and introduces himself as the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Now we so often, because we may know the story, I've already read it once to you, you may know what's coming next. And so it may be difficult to put yourself in his mindset. But I would think that here, Jacob hears this and is very likely frightened because this is the God of Abraham. And it was Abraham's blessing that Jacob had just stolen. He's the God of Isaac the one who Jacob had deceived in order to steal that blessing. This God, Jacob at his lowest, appears to him. And one may think that what is coming is judgment. That what is coming is, is God finally taking that deceiver, that heel grabber, and punishing him for his undeserving nature and punishing him for his sin this God standing at the top of that staircase, that ladder looming over this picture, large, introduces himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And there must be a measure of fear within Jacob. But God does not pronounce judgment. He pronounces promise. We read and continue in that verse, the land of which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. It's not judgment that Jacob hears from God, but it's promise. You notice he does not mention anything about his past. He doesn't mention anything to him about his scheme to force his brother to barter for his birthright. He doesn't mention anything to him about his scheme with his mother to deceive their father so that he may steal the blessing from Isaac intended for Esau. He doesn't mention anything to him about his name, meaning heel grabber and deceiver. He brings up none of that. What God does, even though he knows, and it has been established in the text already, that Jacob is undeserving of the promise. And yet God himself, just as he did with Abraham on numerous occasions and with Isaac, 
reveals clearly to Jacob that the promise of God is for him. And that promise is so similar to what we have read previously as God communicated with Abraham in one instance in Genesis 13, God had blessed Abraham to the point where his possessions had grown and even blessed his nephew Lot so that his possessions had grown and they had kind of become in conflict with one another. They couldn't stay in the same place. They had too much stuff. And so Abraham lets Lot choose and Lot chooses the best ground. And then God leads Abraham up on a mountain and here's what God says to him. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. Sounds exactly like what God is saying to Jacob here. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Just as God told Abram that his offspring would be like the dust of the earth when it inhabited this land for as far as he could see to the east and the west and the north and the south, God says the same thing to undeserving Jacob here. Makes the same promise. Your offspring shall be the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, the east, and the north, and the south. God looks at undeserving Jacob here in his lowest as he flees from his brother, leaving all behind and says, I am still going to work in you, Jacob. This is still going to be your promise. This is still going to be your land. Now he's talking about his offspring here. He continues in verse 14, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now remember, Jacob is on this mission. The cover of the mission, right, is his mom reminds Isaac that he can't marry one of the Canaanite women. His brother had done that and made life miserable. And mom doesn't want that. And so she says that to Isaac. But she says that to Isaac because she doesn't want her son to marry a Canaanite woman, but also because she knows Esau's going to try to kill him. So the cover for his fleeing is so that he'll go find a wife. But he doesn't even, he's not even sure that the family's still there. He's actually somewhat surprised. We'll get to it next week. He's somewhat surprised when he gets there. He's like, oh, I found you. It's really a good, it's good because he's really not sure. The same thing we saw with Abraham's servant when he sent him to find his long lost family back in Haran. Oh, do we even know that they're going to be there? So Jacob's not just childless. Jacob is wifeless here still. And his promised offspring, and his promise that his offspring will inherit this land, and then is also promised that his offspring shall bless the entire earth. This again takes us all the way back to God's initial promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Childless undeserving Jacob receives the same promise from God that childless Abraham received. No piece of the promise is lost. This promise now into the third generation, even though Jacob does not deserve it, maintains the same force that God gave all those years before to Abraham, that the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Now again, Put yourself in Jacob's place. He's left everything behind. He's alone in this desolate place with nothing but a rock for a pillow, sleeping in the dirt 
And yet God says to undeserving, wifeless, childless Jacob, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Then we get another behold in verse 15. So look again, the scriptures tell us, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Here's how God concludes his promise to Jacob. (laughs) I will do this. Not because you deserve it, Jacob. Not because there's something good about you that has made me do this in you, but I will do this. I'm going to keep you, Jacob. I'm going to bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done all that I have promised. Multiple times there, we see God's promise wrapped in himself and who he is. It's not tied to who Jacob is. It's tied to who God is. And he will accomplish his purposes, even through undeserving Jacob. The story doesn't end here. Jacob awakes, and we now see this profession of faith in God from Jacob. Look at verses 16 through 19. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. So what happens? Jacob awakes and has this complete change. Jacob, who was the heel-grabbing deceiver, who schemed against his brother, who schemed with his mother against his father, who is now on the run, sleeping in the dirt with a rock for a pillow, awakes and recognizes, I have been in the presence of God. And he declares, how awesome is this place? This is always the response the positive response of people who have an encounter with holy God. He is awesome. To remember who the original recipients of this story were, the story written by Moses during the Exodus to the people of God being delivered from slavery in Egypt. They had numerous encounters with mighty God. Probably the one that stood in their minds the most was in their early days of fleeing from Egypt. They come to the Red Sea, the Egyptians pressing in on them and God parts the sea. They cross on dry land. They come to the other side. Here come the Egyptians and God swallows them up in the waters of the sea. And afterwards, the people of God worship him In Exodus 15, we read, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? All these generations later after Jacob, Jacob's descendants have their own encounter with God and say the same thing, you are awesome. Awesome is our God. And then Jacob begins to worship God He recognizes the presence of God in that place. He takes that pillar, which, or he takes that rock, which had just been a makeshift pillow, sets it on its end, 
goes to sacrifice. He's got nothing to sacrifice. This guy's gone with nothing. He's got some oil. He pours it over the top, consecrating that rock, calling that place Bethel. Beth meaning house, El meaning God, the house of God. Even though the Canaanites had another name for it, and we're given that name here in the context, regardless of what other people called that place, it's now Bethel, the house of God. We see Jacob worshiping God here in this place. This is pre-temple worship. The recognition that the presence of God is special. He knows that something has happened that is special. He recognizes that while he put his head on that rock in just another night on his journey to Haran, life will never be the same again because he encountered God. Generations later, his descendants through the tabernacle and ultimately the temple in in a place that would not be all that far, maybe 10 miles away from where this encounter happens. They go generation after generation to worship God, recognizing that there was something special about that place in that time that God had established. Much of the Psalms is dedicated towards temple worship. Psalm 84 is one of them. We read, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul long, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For much of redemptive history, the people of God went to a place to experience God, to worship God, to sacrifice towards God. And we see that here in Jacob's life as he has had this experience with God and he establishes a place of worship. But that's not all he does. Pick up in verse 20. He now makes a vow. He says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Here we see Jacob establishing this place as a place of worship, recognizing that this is holy ground consecrated for God, that he has not just had a dream, but he has had an encounter with the one true living God. He now makes his vow. And he says, God, I believe your promise. God, I believe that you'll keep me. God, I believe that you'll not only keep me and supply for me, I believe you're going to bring me back to this land. This is the moment of faith for Jacob. In the first several chapters of the story of Abraham, starting in chapter 12 and onward, God kind of progressively reveals the promise to Abraham. But then we get to Genesis 15, which we've looked at multiple times over the last several chapters, but it always bears repeating. Something unique happens. In Genesis 15, Abraham's having his own epiphany with God, his own encounter. And God brings him outside and says, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. In Genesis 15, we see Abraham's faith moment to where it's no longer about what Abraham does. It's about the fact that he believed God and that belief became righteousness for him. Not righteousness that he had created on his own, but righteousness that had been imparted to him by God. We see that same moment here in the life of Jacob. That now Jacob believes God. 
And at the beginning of that dream, the Lord standing at the top of that ladder was the God of Abraham and Isaac. But now, this next morning, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob believes God. He trusts in God. He's no longer relying on his own skill to provide his his own deception both towards his brother and his father. Now it is the Lord and the Lord alone who will provide for Jacob. And then Jacob offers something unto the Lord that is now, we've only mentioned twice here in all of this series in Genesis. He says at the end of verse 22, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob now commits to the biblical practice of tithing. Tithing is giving a tenth of all that God gives to you back to God. We've only really seen this once before here in the story of Genesis. In Genesis 14, Abraham's on the warpath to rescue Lot from some Mesopotamian kings, goes all the way to the northern end of the promised land to rescue Lot, comes moving back down south. And he gets very close to the same place where Jacob is today. And he encounters a king named Melchizedek. We're told the king of Salem, Salem would become Jerusalem, who brought out bread and wine. We're told in verse 18 of Genesis 14 that this is a priest of the most high God. And then we read that he blessed Abram. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram becomes Abraham, tithes to Melchizedek, a priest of the most high God. But here Jacob commits to doing the same thing to the Lord himself as an earthly sign of his commitment to the covenant. Now, why is that important for Jacob's life? Well, think about the only things we know about Jacob, the only stories that we have about Jacob is that he's this heel-grabbing deceiver, right? This is what we know about him so far in the text is that he was willing to manipulate his brother to get his birthright. He was willing to deceive his father to get the blessing. That he was really self-reliant, that he had focused on all the things in this world that glittered as if they were gold. And now, because God has changed his life, he now has a different perspective. And that perspective says, God, Everything that I have is because you gave it to me. And as a sign of that, as as a reminder of that, I'm going to give a tenth of that to you. Now, I don't know how Jacob did that. I I can't tell you. There wasn't a temple for him to bring it into. There wasn't later a church for him to bring it into. I don't know how he does it, but we know he does. But he promises that to God. This is his physical sign that he believes God and is committed to this covenant that God has made with him. So what? Jesus Christ descended from on high, bridging the gap between man and God so that we might be partakers of his promise through faith. Now you may say for just a moment, wait a second. We've been talking about Jacob for 30 minutes. How is the so what? How is the application focused on Jesus? I hadn't said the word Jesus yet, I don't think, in this sermon. So, so how, how is this? Well, I, I wanted to preach the, the story, the text, within the context of Genesis. But for us, 
both the church and people alive today, we have to read this looking back through the work of Jesus. And when we read this story looking back through the work of Jesus, it shines this incredible spotlight on the descended son of God. Because this story has Jacob at his lowest, envisioning a stairway to heaven on which only the angels can walk and at the top of that stairway is God. But Jesus, Jesus has changed that relationship. Jesus has changed the dynamic fully. Let me show you. In John chapter one, we're told that Jesus is in the beginning of his ministry and he begins to call disciples to follow him. He ultimately calls 12 of them, right? Who do ministry with him uh, during his earthly ministry. And some of these guys, we don't read a whole lot about in the scriptures. Uh, and one of those is a guy named Nathaniel. Nathaniel was, was one of the 12 disciples. His close friend was Philip. And the day before Jesus encounters Nathaniel, he calls Philip to be his disciples and Philip begins to follow him. And then Philip wants to go get his friend Nathaniel. So he goes off and gets Nathaniel who's sitting under a fig tree. And he says, we found him. We found the one the scriptures have talked about. Come, let's, let's go follow him. And Nathaniel's kind of doubting. He's kind of asking Philip some questions. So he's on the road and Jesus looks up and actually calls Nathaniel by name. And it, it's amazing to him. And he confesses, you're the son of God right here. Recognize that you couldn't have known me. You, you couldn't have known me. You couldn't have known that I was sitting under that fig tree. Jesus said, I, I even knew you when you were sitting under that fig tree, Nathaniel. That was out of sight. And Nathaniel was so amazed by this. And Jesus looks at him and says, says this, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, we're told here in John 1 that Nathanael was a very faithful Israelite. For Jesus to say, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, two things immediately would have come to Nathanael's mind. The first is the image that we get here from Genesis 28. This is the only real place that we kind of see this same imagery, right? This ladder, this stairway to heaven on which the angels of God are ascending and descending. But here in Genesis 28, they're ascending and descending on this stairway, on this ladder. In John 1, what are they ascending and descending on? The son of man. The ladder is now changed. It's no longer a ladder. It's now a person. Now, you say, well, who's the son of man then? That's important to know. In the book of John, Jesus often refers to himself as the son of man. This is the first time of multiple that he does in John, right here in John 1, It's the first time he calls himself the son of man. So the second thing Nathaniel would have heard is not Genesis 28, it's not only Genesis 28, but Daniel 7, which is the prophecy about the son of man. It's where Jesus borrows that language from communicating that he fulfills that prophecy as well. Listen to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, so similar to Jacob, a dream at night and behold with the clouds of heaven. So a dream of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel's prophecy of the son of man is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that he is the one who descended from heaven He is the one that all people will serve. He is the one through whom all nations will be blessed. So this is what Jesus is claiming for himself. The son of man descended from heaven. There is no longer a need for a staircase or a ladder to connect heaven to earth with God standing at the top because God himself has come down from that ladder. God himself has become the ladder. That Jesus is our bridge to heaven. He has the one who has bridged that gap between us and God. In Jacob's vision, it is only the angels that can go between. But now we have direct access to God because the Son of Man has come and is our ladder. He has made the way so that we then can have a whole new perspective. And that our response to this encounter with God is different from Jacob's. Jacob's response was, wow, this is a really special place. This is a holy place. We need to consecrate this place. This place is the house of God. Because of the work of Jesus, it's no longer tied to a place. It's not a place anymore. Listen to Hebrews 10, right? So because of the work that Jesus has brought about, The perspective changes. So the author of Hebrews, looking back through Jesus, can write this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Bethel, house of God, is no longer needed. There's no longer a need for a temple in Jerusalem. There's no longer a need for a tabernacle in the wilderness. There's no real need for churches to even view their buildings as sanctuaries where we go to meet God. The holy place has completely changed, my friends. Listen, there's a reason. I try to be really careful with what I say. And one of the things I try to be really careful with what I say is how I refer to this room that we're in right now. You'll never hear me call this the house of God. Now, I know some people do because you just, you heard that your whole life. And so it's kind of the way you refer to church. But for me, it's a doctrinal thing. I'll never call this the house of God because it's not. This is bricks and sheetrock and steel and stucco and concrete. That's what this is. This whole thing could blow over tomorrow and God would still be in us. It's not not about a building anymore. It's not about a place. It's not about a stone that's been set up right because the house of God has forever changed It's not that Jacob's response was wrong. Jacob's response was right for what God was doing then. The response now, though, is to recognize that Jesus himself has made a way so that we then become the temple of God, so that we then become the dwelling place of God, that we, the followers of God, his church, are his temple. We 
the people, not the building, not the place. We are his house. And just like Jacob, we don't deserve it. Just like Jacob, we could never climb that ladder ourselves. But Jesus became that ladder for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, leaving all behind. In our lowest moment, in our most undeserving, God sent Jesus so that we might be right with him. That's why we look at this story and say, this is all about Jesus because he is the one who bridged that gap so that if we will come to him in faith, we too, just like undeserving Jacob, can become partakers in the promise of God. Would you believe that today? If you've never believed that, believe that today. Jesus will save you and make you right with God. If you have believed that today, reaffirm that in your heart, recognizing that it is not because of any value that you bring to the table. It is very lowest. Here's Jacob and God appears. And that's exactly what God did for us. At our very lowest, God appeared, bringing us out of our despair and into his kingdom. Let me pray for us. Thank you, God for Jesus who bridges the gap. Thank you, God, for Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, who became the staircase for us, that we might get to you, that we might be right with you, that we might be your righteousness. Not because we deserve it, but because Jesus is good for us. I pray people would believe that today and be saved. I pray people would be reminded of that today and recognize that it is all about him and he is the one we worship. We pray in Christ's name, amen. If you're watching with us online, our guys have put a website on your screen. You could fill out that form. One of our pastors will contact you. We'd love to be able to walk with you through new life in Christ. I'd love to hear what God's doing in your life through this sermon. If you're in the room, I'll be in the lobby afterwards. I'd love to talk to you. If you have questions about the sermon, if you would like to follow Jesus today, would you let me help you with that? Come find me after the service. For all of us, though, we respond in this. We worship the one who has become our ladder so that we might be right with God. Would you stand with me as we respond?